from Romans 6, uh, verses 3 through 5. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have... For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In my personal opinion, if someone wants to examine their family trees and and go back and look at their own family history, that's well and good. That's uh, certainly their right. But when someone does that for you, that's a little creepy. (laughs) Otherwise, how would Shannon know how many crackpots I have in my family? (laughs) Oh, crockpots, sorry. I haven't counted lately, Shannon, but there's a number. Seriously, if you will, look at our text very carefully this morning. And I know that... uh, Keith just read it, but if you'll look at it one more time, walk through it with me one more time. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? If you don't mind writing in your Bible, you might want to underline baptized into his death. Make sure it's your own Bible. Therefore, we were buried with him, circle the word buried, if you will. We're going to be talking about that in just a moment. With him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also walk in newness of life. There's where your spiritual slate has been wiped clean. You've got a brand new start. There's newness of life. It's like a newborn baby. You can start all over again. And then verse 5, if we notice the conditional nature, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And I note that as being conditional because that's so important. Paul is helping us to sit up and take notice of the fact that only when we've been buried with him in in baptism is there then the hope that we will also be raised with him. And I hope that we appreciate the seriousness of that. You know, there is no greater area of disagreement and discussion in the religious world than as it pertains to the subject of water baptism. And that's why on this fundamental Sunday, I want us to take another look at this important Bible subject. Some teach that baptism is absolutely necessary for the remission of sins. We would be among that number. Others teach that it's a good thing to do to show to the world that you are already a Christian by virtue of having accepted Christ into your heart. And then there are others who think that it's just a non-issue. That it isn't really important, it isn't critical one way or the other. And so there's no benefit to baptism and it's not worthy of intelligent discussion. But if you will, notice the the options. The scriptural action of baptism is either sprinkling, pouring, or immersion. Those are the three options. The scriptural subject of baptism is either an infant or one who is already a Christian by virtue of their faith, or it's an accountable sinner who has become a believer and who desires to be saved. The scripture teaches that design, the design or the purpose of baptism is either a dedicatory rite for infants an initiatory right to become a member of a church after one has already become a Christian, or it is absolutely necessary for a person to be saved in order to have one's sins forgiven. 
We need to examine scripture to see what God has to say on that subject. And if you'll notice in Romans chapter 6, verse 4 in particular, that Paul there teaches that the action of baptism is immersion in water. And that certainly squares with Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12 because there Paul references baptism as being a burial. And, and, and we bury people not by sprinkling or pouring dirt over them by putting them completely under the ground. And so when a person is immersed in water, then that constitutes a burial. Mark 16, 16 tells us that the subject of baptism is an accountable sinner, he who believes. Acts 2, verse 38, the re-chronicling of the circumstances on the day of Pentecost teaches us that the design of baptism is in order to be saved or for the remission of sins. That's exactly what Peter said in Acts 2 and verse 38. There was a woman who had attended worship services for a few weeks at a congregation of the churches of Christ. She asked for an audience with a with preacher. And once they were together... In his office, she said, I, I've noticed that in, in my visits with this congregation that you appeal at the close of each lesson for those who are believers to be baptized in order to have their sins washed away. And he said, yeah, that's right. She said further, I've got some questions about that. She then proceeded to ask the three most often asked questions about water baptism that there are. Question number one, she asked, why is it that churches of Christ everywhere teach that baptism is necessary for salvation? Notice at least a couple of implications in that question. The first implication is that some believe that only churches of Christ teach this. And that's not true. There are some denominational churches that teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. Now admittedly, they are few in number. But it would be incorrect to say that only churches of Christ teach this. In fact, it's been my observation that almost every religious scholar of every religious persuasion admit that this is what was taught and practiced in the apostolic church. Implication number two is that this is all that churches of Christ teach that a person has to do in order to be saved. While the truth of the matter is, baptism alone will not save a person any more than faith alone, repentance alone, or confession alone. Here's the answer to the woman's question. Why is it the churches of Christ everywhere teach that one must be baptized in order to be saved? Because simply, that's what the Bible teaches. And we are accountable to the New Testament teachings on the subject of salvation. Listen to this cross-section of scripture just briefly. Mark 16, 16, we've already referenced but there is where Jesus said, go preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And then John 3 verse 5, conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus answered most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water, there it is, born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Acts 2.38 again on the day of Pentecost. Peter and the apostles told that audience, verse 37 says, they were pricked in their hearts, said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Here's the response. Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When Ananias had that conversation with Saul of Tarsus, Acts twenty-two sixteen says this, Ananias said to Saul, what are you waiting for? Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized. And wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul in his letter to the Galatians said in Galatians 3 verse 27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you want to know how you get in Christ into his saved body, Paul said there it is. You're baptized into Christ. 
One more, 1 Peter 3.21. Peter said, The like figure whereinto baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience before God. The preacher then said to the woman in his office, I have a question now for you. Did you notice the two things that stand out in each of these passages that we have just noted? Number one, he said, watch this. Water baptism always precedes in every one of those passages. Water baptism always precedes salvation or the remission of sins. Where the two are found mentioned in the same passage, it is never, ever the other way around. Please take note of that. He said, in fact, you can go through from Matthew through Revelation, and anywhere you find the phrase, in Christ, notice, it will always have baptism before that. Observation number two, he said, in every account of conversion in Scripture, baptism was not optional. It was required of those persons who were being converted to Christ and who wanted to be added to his spiritual body, the church. Question number two. But why was, why was Christ baptized? Well, he wasn't baptized to be saved. And he certainly wasn't baptized in order to become a child of God. There's absolutely no doubt about that. That just doesn't make sense. He was already the son of God. And he was already in a saved condition. But neither was it because his sins had already been remitted. So that certainly doesn't help the case for anyone who is arguing against baptism. He had no sins that needed repenting of. Acts, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 makes that clear. That we have a high priest who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities and was tempted in all points like as we are, here it is, yet without sin. So obviously trying to equate or parallel Christ's own experience with ours doesn't work because he had no sins that needed remitting. But we do. And so what Jesus did is important and we're going to establish that in just a moment. But it doesn't exactly parallel our own spiritual situation. He wasn't baptized according to some denominational ritual in order to become a part of some religious group as an initiatory rite of passage. So why was he baptized? Let's let the Bible respond to that question. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. I want to read a few verses. Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. And I'm going to read down through verse 17. And here it is, straight from God's word. Black ink on white page. Very clear. Then Jesus said, Jesus came from Galilee to John at, at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, but you're coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, and then he, that is John, allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God ascending, descending like a, a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There's the account of Jesus' baptism in the words of Scripture. I think a clue as to why Jesus was baptized can be found in verse 15. There's the phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. That is, because this action was a part of God's will for his son. Baptism is a part of God's righteous expectations as it pertains to Jesus. And in doing so, Jesus left a clear example of unquestioning obedience to the Heavenly Father. I think that's the parallel 
Jesus showed us that we need to obey God in every aspect of our lives. And so he left that as an example. Now watch this. He told others that one couldn't be saved just by saying, Lord, Lord. But rather he said, only those who are saved are those who actually do the will of the Father who is in heaven. And, and Jesus practiced what he preached. Think about it. Had Jesus not been baptized, some in later generations would contend that since Jesus wasn't baptized, and since we need to walk in his footsteps and do what Jesus did, then we don't need to be baptized either. That would have been the argument. And yet isn't it amazing that while Jesus did submit to baptism in order to please the Father and to fulfill all righteousness, many of those who contend in our day that we ought to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and do what Jesus did still contend that baptism isn't at all important. Notice that Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 says this. Though he were a son, this is speaking of Christ, of course. Though he were a son, let he, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the author of salvation to all them that obey him. Who is it that's going to be saved? Those who obey him. Not those who quibble who want to argue with what God has called upon each of us to do in order to have our sins remitted, but rather those who have that kind of obedient spirit, who don't hesitate on the edge of the baptistry and say, but here, here's what my preacher said. No, what does God's word have to say? That's the matter of paramount importance. Here's the third question. But what about the thief on the cross? I think we would all agree that is probably the most famous thief in all of human history. There are not too many religious discussions that go very far without some reference to the thief on the cross. And that, in a nutshell, is what the religious world would conclude about the matter of water baptism. So the idea is set forth that, that the thief is, is brought up usually goes like this. I, I can be saved without being baptized. If the thief could, so can I be. Or said another way, whatever it was that the thief had to do in order to be saved is what I need to do, no more and no less. That's it in a nutshell. Let's turn those statements, if we can, into questions and then examine them for just a moment in light of Scripture. Was the thief saved? If you're like me, you've been a part of some discussions, maybe in a Bible class, or maybe in, in, a, in a formal uh, uh, setting of study where some suggest that the thief did nothing on the cross to evidence repentance. I believe that we need to take Jesus' statement at face value, where he said to that thief, today you will be with me in paradise. I think that answers the question of, was the thief saved? Jesus said he was. He said, not only will you see me, we'll be together in paradise, but it'll take place on this very day, circle your calendar. Today is the day that you will be with me in paradise. Now, the mere fact that the other thief was asking for physical salvation does not mean that this is the only thing that this thief was interested in. Here's a second question we need to ask about this, this thief and his experience, and that is, was he ever baptized? Well, we can't know for certain. But we do know that he had some knowledge of the kingdom because... Remember what brought this up was when he said, remember to Jesus, to remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response was, today you will be with me in paradise. So he had some knowledge of, of the kingdom as per his request. And Matthew chapter 3, 5 through 6 does say, then went out to him, this is John the Immerser that it's talking about, then it went out to him, Jerusalem and all Judea 
and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in the Jordan confessing their sins. It's altogether possible that the thief might have been a part of that number that had been baptized by John the Immerser. We don't know. But that's actually the point. The critical point here is to acknowledge that we don't know whether or not he was, had ever submitted to John's baptism. But I do know that he was not baptized into the name of or into the death of Jesus Christ for any reason. Because he lived and died before the call to salvation of the New Testament had come into effect. That was, of course, on the day of Pentecost some weeks later. It wasn't until that day of Pentecost that the, the baptism of the Great Commission went into effect and was first preached by the apostles there in Jerusalem. What I'm saying is the thief lived and died under the old law, which did not require baptism. Final question. Can we be saved like the thief was saved? That's a question we don't have to guess about. The circumstances have changed since the Lord granted eternal life to that penitent thief. While on earth, Jesus, as the author of salvation, could grant redemption to anyone that he deemed worthy. Before we end this study, I, I want to note that in Scripture. If you'll turn for a moment to Matthew chapter 9. Let's look at the first six verses. Matthew 9, 1 through 6. This had created some confu confusion by those who watched Jesus and heard him teach. But, but the Bible says in, in Matthew 9, 1 beginning, And he got into a boat, crossed over, and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. What's the man's problem? He's paralyzed. But what does Jesus say to him? Son, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. And then when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Again, this is a question we don't have to, we don't have to wonder about. We don't have to wonder about whether the thief's experience needs to, or our experience needs to replicate his. When the Lord ascended on high, he placed baptism in the gospel as a condition of salvation, and no man has a right to remove it. Let's say there's a man who sells suits. He's into menswear. And so he sells suits. He has the right to sell suits at any cost that he chooses. Sometimes we use the phrase, what the market will bear. You know, whatever someone is willing to pay for it, that's what he's going to sell them for. I, let's say that I drive back to Atlanta and try to buy a suit from a man who works for the man who used to sell suits when I lived there. And I try to buy a $300 suit for 150 although that's a little bit beyond my budget. But anyway, for the sake of haggling, I say, I, this, the man who used to run this place would sell me suits at half price. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. It'd no, be no good to say, well, Billy Bob, it, it is Georgia, Billy Bob used to sell me suits for, for this price just a few years ago. No, the current owner has the right to set the price anywhere he wants to set it. 
Let's take that and drop it into the spiritual realm. We have no right to cut anything out of the gospel that Christ has placed there with divine authority. Jesus marked the price to be paid. And he's the one who said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16, verse 16. One would have as much right to cut out faith or repentance as a condition of salvation as he would to cut out baptism. But you know that we have no right to cut out any of those things. One final question. Why do you think God placed baptism as a condition of our salvation in Scripture? It could be a test of our faith. That is, are you willing to do what the Lord said that you need to do, even though you may see no tangible connection between being immersed in water and having your sins forgiven? I know that some people think that way because I've had discussions with folks who said, I can't see any connection between being, they oftentimes use the word dunked, immersed in water and having my spiritual sins washed away. Well, that's one reason why Mark 16, 16 ends by saying, but he who does not believe will be condemned. An unbeliever who does not take God at his word has no incentive to be baptized. He's going to go no further in the redemptive process if he does not believe that God means what he says. It could be that baptism has been set in God's plan as a test of our love. After all, Jesus did say in John 14 in verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Which ones, Lord? Any of them. All of them. Anything the Lord requires, if I love him, I'm willing to do it. Now the only question that remains for us this morning is, what hinders you from being baptized? Are you not ready to sing with meaning, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine? Something Cecil said here at the Lord's Supper table reminded me of the story that I've told here before probably several times. It made an impression on me a number of years ago about a young man who was only 19 years of age who through no fault of his own contracted laryngeal cancer. That is, in order to be able to survive, he was going to have to have his larynx removed, his voice box. As he was in the pre-op room, a kind nurse suddenly realized that. Here's a young man, 19 years of age, who will never ever be able to speak another word with his natural voice. So she walked over to him and said, young man, do you have, before you go into surgery, do you have anything that you would like to say? He lifted his head and with tears in his eyes, having tried for several years to be a New Testament Christian and to live faithfully, he said this, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Are you ready to be made clean in the blood of Jesus while we stand and while we sing? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you falling, trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb?